John's argument is clear. Lovelessness is godlessness. Many have sought to define and describe love. It is uh, wonderful and iconic in the words of the anonymous poet who said, love is silence when your words would hurt. Love is patience when a neighbor is curt. Love is deafness when scandal flows. Love is thoughtfulness for another's woes. Love is promptness when stern duty calls. Love is courage when misfortune falls. These are the words of the anonymous poet. As many have sought to define and describe love. But if you and I are looking this morning for the truest, realist definition of love, we need look no further than 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. John argues that the truest definition of love is the personification and the accomplishment of God's grace in the face of human indifference. In our text, John pins what I think is the clearest definition of love anywhere. But in doing so, he urges upon us that even this passage is not a strategy, it's our identity. And so potent is John's translation of love in human language that in its description is both our identification as children of God and verification that we are in active relationship with God right now. And so Christ Church of Oak Brook, the articulation of our love is not found in the superlatives of our sentiments. But John argues that the articulation of our love for God is found in the expression of our actions. To claim that we know God is to at the same time manifest the invisible presence of God in our everyday treatment of one another. I'll say it again. Lovelessness is godlessness. Here is my sermon in a sentence. Here is the thesis of this passage. This text is tailored to teach us that the character of God ought to determine or dictate the character of his people. The nature of who God is, the essence of his being and his person, ought to translate into how you and I live our lives and how we treat one another. So here is the question that I ask of this text and allow John to answer from this very passage. What does love do? And that seems to be a worthy question in the times in which we live. And everybody wants to claim love wins. And what love does. John, using the cognate form for love in the original language more than 30 times in this short epistle, seems to suggest to us that love is not simply a term that we throw around, but love is a way we live. His pen seems to drip with affection. As the word love seems to trip over itself again and again, every other paragraph. And a cursory reading of John's epistle uh, reveals to even the casual reader that John seems to be consumed with godly love. 
But I'd like to suggest to you today that John sees love as the controlling attribute that ought to affect the people of God. So in this way, John says, love does some things. Now, preacher, today, as you seem to make me comfortable by the way you're looking at me, I, I preach it today because I'm convinced that the church needs to live out the two imperatives of this passage. That we don't need to be a people who simply talk about love, who tweet about love, and who Instagram pictures of our love. But we need to be a community that is marked and defined by the love of God. How we treat one another. So here it is. John says, love communicates the character of God. That when you and I love one another, we communicate the essence and the nature of God in our action one to the other. Look at at it with me here in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That's a pretty big claim, but it's even more startling in light of the literary context. In the first six verses, John is writing to the Christians uh, spread abroad in this time about how to discern fictitious believers from the genuine article. He's telling them not, not to believe every spirit, every wind that comes through, but to test the spirit by the spirit. And it seems that when he gets to verse seven, he shifts in subject. But I submit to you today that John is not shifting the subject so much as he is continuing the subject line. John is saying that you can tell genuine believers, watch this, by considering the consistency and potency of their love. You know you're a real Christian. You can tell others are real believers. When you can pick up the palpable nature of their love, that it is strong, it mirrors the love of God, and it is consistent. To clearly identify authentic love, John goes on to give us an exposition of what love really is. You can boil it down to this one statement found in verse 8. God is love. Notice now he does not say love is God, but he says God is love. In other words, love is so selfless, so redemptive, so powerful that when we trace its trails and we follow it to its roots, we find that we are standing in the very presence of the eternal God. When we love church, we communicate who God is and that we belong to him. In the most intimate and pastoral language, John segments this text, verse 7 and verse 11, with two affirming designations. It's the same one. And he gives what seems like the same imperative, but with two diverging motivations. In the original language, he he says, beloved, dear loved ones, let us love one another. He does not say, dear hated ones, let us hate one another. Or, Or dear impatient ones, let us be impatient with one another. Or dear hurt ones, let us hurt one another. But he says, dear Loved one. 
hearts. Let us love one another. It seems to be the implication, watch this, that loved people ought to love other people. That what God has done for you ought to be demonstrated and given away to other people. And the logical inference, even apparently to John's congregation, is the same with you and I today. The logical inference is for some cynic to ask why. Why, John? Why should I love people who are difficult to love? Why should I persevere and hang in there with people who are hard to love? John answers back. He says, you ought to do it because love comes from God. In one sense, church, all things come from God. But for John, love is the principal thing that comes from God. And this is what scholars call a genitive of source. It is to say that God is the owner, the possessor, and the distributor of love. That real love can come to us in no other way. It has to come from God. And even in that statement is a not so subtle nod to every whimsical, depraved notion of human love. You hear a lot of people today talking about their love comes from God. John would retort back, oh, really? Love wins. Don't you know that all forms of love must be from God since it is love? But John says that not every depraved and carnal definition of love for which humanity is infamous comes from God. The raging rebel living and loving on their own terms cannot claim God as the source of their love or their lifestyle. In this passage, John immediately associates both the benefactor and the practitioner of love together. In these words, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. This church is the evidence that some of us in this room are of God and some of us are anti-God. Those who are born of God share this attribute with God and from God. And in this way, you and I can have epistemological certainty that we are the children of God. This is what scholars call, uh, the communicable attributes of God. In other words, God, there's some aspects of God's nature, some attributes of God that you and I do not share. And that's wonderful. In other words, there are some ways in which you cannot be like God. I'll give you a few since you're asking. Thank you for asking. You're such an attentive audience. God is omnipresent. You are never omnipresent. Humanity is fascinated with ubiquity, aren't we? There is the Navajo Monument. I, I, I should have found it last night. I, uh, it's where uh, New Mexico and I think Arizona and Colorado, I, I pass geography, but I don't, all of the states, the four of them right there, come together. It's, it's a national monument. People come from all over the nation to take a picture at the four points, the quadra points, and they put one foot in one state and one foot in another, one hand in another state and the other hand in another, and they smile and they take a picture and they send it to their loved ones as if to say, I'm in four states at one time. But as wonderful as that is, you know you cannot be in two places at the same time. God doesn't have that problem. God is everywhere at the same time. He's so, thank you for those three amens. He's so (laughs) wonderful. 
He's so wonderful, so beyond us, so great and grand that he is omniscient. You are not omniscient. You think you know everything. And I know it. If I had the chance to interview your friends and loved ones, some of them would say to me, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he thinks he knows everything. You can't tell her anything that she doesn't already know. But here's the reality, friends. You do not know as much as you think you know. God is omnibenevolent. He's all good. Nothing from him ever is wrong or bad. You and I, well, we struggle to do the good. There are many wonderful ways in which you and I cannot be like God. But John argues that in this text today, there is one way in particular that you and I can be like God. God shares this attribute with us. He enables us to be like him in this way. He wants his children to be loving. I'll tell you the truth from human experience. Well, that all fathers want their children to be like them in some way. And maybe I can do it at at another service. I I thought to do it last night. I want to show you a picture of my family, show you how good looking my kids really are. You see, I had the great fortune and, and fellas, I mean, no disrespect to you, especially if you're sitting next to your wife. I mean, no disrespect at all. God bless me to marry the prettiest woman he ever made. She was born nine months to the day just about after I was born. It was as if God said to the heavenly host, now that Charlie's there, let's send her. We prayed while she was pregnant. I was, I knew that she was carrying a a boy, our son, the first go around. I I knew it. We prayed as a child uh, while she was pregnant, that our child would look like his mother. We did it because when you marry up, that's what you ought to do. When when your spouse looks better than you and you want your kids to have a shot at a great prom date or a wonderful spouse when they get done with college, you do stuff like that. And so we prayed and God loves us. We know he loves us. One of the ways we know he loves us is that he answered our prayer. That baby boy came out. I looked at him and I smiled and I started crying and I said, oh dear, he looks just like you. And as he got bigger, I started to wonder if God took it too far. He looks a lot like his mother. So I just started to pray in my own heart. Well, God, let him let him be something like me. (laughs) Few few months ago, literally, my son crawls into our bed. I'm asleep. He gets between his mother and I and instinctively because my blood runs through his veins. He is encoded with my DNA. He, he does something that I've never taught him how to do. He doesn't even know how to do it from watching me. He, he slides one hand under the pillow. He nestles his head right underneath there, right on top of the pillow. And he puts his other hand over on the side of his head and he opens his mouth just gently to get the air in. And unbeknownst to me, my wife wakes up and she sees that he is sleeping just like I am sleeping. There we are right next to each other, posed in perfect position on the bed. She eases the dimmer of the light switch up and snaps a picture on her smartphone, goes downstairs to the kitchen and smiles as she texts me a picture. I wake up a few hours later and I see there it is. He's just like me. (laughs) 
He's not me. But he sleeps like me. He's not me. But he walks like me. What John is saying is that when the world looks at you and I. They ought to see we are not God. But we walk like God. We love like God. We give like God. We share the attributes of God. The world cannot see God with their own eyes. They got to see the church. And when they see how the church treats each other, they then come in contact with the potency and the power of God. We are born of God. We know God. When we love in this way, but John says the opposite is true that anybody who does not love does not know God for God is love. While urging us to love one another, John goes on to explain how love works. Help me. Holy ghost here in verse nine, the text says by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. John argues in the most wonderful language of verse nine, that the love of God was put on clear display in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This word manifested in the original language means to make publicly glaring that which was previously hidden. In other words, God through Jesus Christ showed the world that he loves the world because he gave us the most manifest expression of his love. Jesus is the palpable expression of love not previously known. Jesus is the unambiguous affection of God for us. Jesus is the obvious exhibit that God cares about us. And it is not, friends, so much that the love of God was hidden before Jesus came. It was just that human eyes and human ears could not discern the full voice and vision of God. But the incarnation is God talk in human language. In Jesus, God became death eligible. Pain capable. He condescended. He stooped to human form. I heard your pastor stole my illustration back on Easter for this. I'll tax him for it later. But since some of you won't remember anyway, I'll go ahead and give it to you again. 2007, the Washington Post tried an experiment on perception and priority. They got a young man named uh, Jason Bell to Uh, stand at the Elephant uh, train station in D.C. to pull out a small violin. They put him in a Washington Nationals baseball cap, some jeans, and a long sleeve shirt. There he stood on the side of the wall, right at the top of the escalator, playing his little violin. A thousand people walked by, some of which were kind enough to throw some change in his little violin case. Struck by some of the music he was playing, some people even stopped looked at him and said, how nice. Some of them had paid more than $100 the night before to watch him. A few weeks before, he had uh, 
filled, packed out literal, literally concert halls in Boston. You see, this was no ordinary guy standing off on the side peddling for change. This guy is one of the most renowned violinists. And standing there, he was playing a $4 million Stradivarius. And they thought he was just a man standing on the side of the train station. Greatness unrecognized. Magnificence misperceived. The priority of their jobs going off to their places of work. Trumping the the greatness that was right in their midst. When Jesus came, it was as though God put him in a baseball cap. Some jeans. Very God of very God, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And the world did not perceive him for who he really was. The world could not understand the full scope of God's redemptive magnificence in him because the world was looking for a military conqueror. They were looking for somebody to come and to put Caesar in check to make the Romans stop. But God sent a different kind of king. He sent somebody to conquer by coming low. He sent somebody to win through the power of love. He sent somebody who came not with politics, but with truth. And the world missed him. But John argues here in verse 9 that the love of God was put on clear display in the rest of the world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The incarnation then is the speech of heaven in human vocabulary. It is the dialect of the celestial in human prose. Jesus is the clearest, realest evidence that God so loved us. He is proof that God puts his money where his mouth is. And matter of fact, God emptied the treasures of heaven down on earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you and I were to go back to God and ask God for more after he's given us Jesus, he would pull his pockets out of his pants and say, we ain't got nothing else to give because in Jesus is everything that heaven has. Y'all should have said amen right there. Because the ears of men could not discern the sounds of God. The love of God commissioned the son of God to reveal the word of God. And you ask, you ask, I hear some of you, how special is this expression of God's tender love? John answers back. Here it is. God didn't give us just anybody church, but the text says that God gave us his only begotten son. Don't read that too quickly. You might miss your praise moment this morning. This will help you go back home and enjoy life. God gave his only begotten son. This means that he was one of a kind. No industrial replicas. No competitors. Jesus is the only one there is. And what makes this magnificent is that God had sent plenty of people before. Oh, yes, he did. He sent Moses. And though the children of Israel were delivered, they really didn't get fully out of trouble. He sent Joshua and Joshua marched them into the promised land. But some of them rebelled even when they got to the promised land. 
He went on to send judges and to send kings, uh, Saul and David, and to send prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all the way down to Malachi. And God had sent them over and over again, but they still could not get it right. So round about Matthew chapter 1, God said, forget it, I'll become a man myself. And he wrapped himself in the likeness of sinful flesh, came all the way down from bright heaven down to earth. And there Jesus is seen as the wonderful expression of God, as God in the flesh. Watch this to be the propitiation for our sins. You got to appreciate this language propitiation. Try that when you get to work tomorrow. Text somebody later and say, yeah, you know, I think um, I need some propitiation for what it is I did for you. Watch this. Propitiation harkens back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, in the Old Testament, the children of Israel celebrated a day of atonement. They would bring to uh, the priests and to the temple these animals, unspotted, blemish-free. How would you like that, ladies? Unspotted, blemish-free. No proactive, nothing to make the skin go nice and smooth to keep your, your youth longer. Perfect animals who had done no wrong to die in the stead of people who did wrong. And so the priest there would transfer uh, the weight, the guilt of the people onto the animals. And they would take them out of the city and kill the animals. And there, the smell, the death of that sacrifice would please the nostrils of God. That that which was innocent took the place of that which was guilty. But it wasn't a permanent, perfect system. If it was, we would have no need for Jesus Christ. But the Day of Atonement practically rolled the sin weight over to the next year. But what John is arguing in this text is for any devoted Jewish reader who would pick this up, they would see very clearly what he is saying, that Jesus is the full and final payment for all of our sins. And lest you sit there looking at me with a sanctimonious eye, like you ain't never sinned, like you've never done anything you're not ashamed of, I would to God at some churches I preached at, that I could take snippets of your life and put them on the screen that you didn't want anybody else to know about. How would that make you feel? You would not be so proud in that moment, which makes the weight of this text so heavy that through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, God satisfied his own wrath. He gave you an eye forgiveness. And this is the beauty of worshiping God. This says to us that what God demands for from us, he supplies for himself. Jesus Christ is the supply of God's own demand. God demands holiness. Jesus gives it. God demands perfection. Jesus gives it. Who wouldn't trust Jesus Christ? But I race to my seat. I race to my seat when I tell you this. That somehow or another, John explains to us the theological foundation for this love. And he goes on to say to us in a moment that that this is how we know God lives in us. Here it is. In verse 10, John says, and this is love, friends. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love 
not only communicates the character of God, but the other thing that love does, according to verse 11, is that love confirms that God lives inside of you. You can be certain that God is taking up residence in your life when you love according to this passage. You see, in verse 7, John says we ought to love in response to the nature of God. But in verse 11, John says we ought to love in response to God's love for us. In the first imperative, we love in a way that explains God's love. But in the second imperative, we love in a way that evidences that God lives in us. And herein is the proof, church, that God lives in you, that you love other believers. No one has ever seen God at any time. You don't know how tall he is. As a matter of fact, you don't know if he's tall, dark, and handsome. You don't know what kind of cologne he wears. Of course, this is poetic language. You don't know if he wears Gucci's or Ferragamo's. Nobody's ever seen him. Don't you believe anybody who ever tells you they saw him? Nobody's ever seen him. But this text says, if we love one another, we know he lives in us. You can be certain, John says, of what you do not see. That is what faith is. You don't have to see it to know that it's there. You don't have to see him to know that he's active and alive. Boys ministry leader tells the story of taking the young boys to fly kites. He's getting them out and showing them how to get them, lift them up in the air and to let them pull on the string and go all the way up. And then one boy uh, who lets his go all the way to the extension of his string. He looks over at the boys ministry leader. He says, Hey, where's my kite? I don't see it. The boys ministry leader says, I don't see it either. When another curious little boy comes by and says, what are you guys doing? There the young boy is. He said, we're flying kites. That little boy looks up and says, but I don't see a kite. You see it had flown so high beyond the stratosphere up, way up high that he couldn't see it anymore. The little boy flying the kite said, I don't see it either. But every now and then I feel this string pull. I wish I was preaching to some people who felt what I just said. (laughs) You may not see God, but every now and then when you love one another, you can feel him pull. You feel the tug of his presence in your heart. Is there anybody here today? I know this is uncomfortable for you to talk back to the preacher, but let me ask you, since I ain't at my own church, is there anybody here today who's ever felt that? You've been hurt and wounded by somebody. Maybe your spouse has cheated on you. Maybe the bottom of life has fallen out and you felt like the people you loved didn't love you back, but you found the force and the fortitude to keep on loving them. And in that moment, you felt the very real presence of God. If you love one another, you know that he lives inside of you. To the extent that you love is the extent of the space he's taken up in your life. Our, Our church, very beautiful church, historic church. The building we're in was built in the late 50s. It was built originally in the Dan Ryan, North Lane of Dan Ryan. It was moved over. Great story. And they, they put the building there 
they put these old ancient boilers in the building to heat this mammoth facility up. And, and when I got to, uh, to our church, they gave me a tour, and Deacon Taylor took me to the boiler room. I, I think they were trying to scare me. Um, and it worked. It worked that, that first trip down there. And, and I, I noticed that, that these big metallic tanks were sitting down there. And I said, what, what are those? He said, those are the boilers. I said, y'all still using boilers? Yes, sir, Pastor, we still using boilers. I said, well, what's in there? He said, water's in there. How do you know? See, looking at the boilers, you can't tell. You can't see. I said, Deacon, there ain't no water in there. He said, come on, I'll show you, I'll show you. He walked me over, and there's this little tube off to the front of the boilers, little measurement readings. And he says, you see that? I said, yes, I see it. He said, that's what's in there. He said, if it's full all the way to the top, then what's on the inside is full all the way to the top. If it's halfway full, then what's in there is halfway full. You can tell, Pastor, what's in there based upon this little tube. I said, thank you, Deacon Taylor. That will preach. I'll take it from you right at this moment. And here now I give it to you. Your heart and your life is like that glass little tube. If it's full of love, you know God is taking up residence. If it ain't got nothing in there, he ain't there. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you. We bless you for this moment we've had to share together. And I pray, God, that we would rejoice in your greatness and your bigness and the wonder of your darling son, Jesus Christ. May he be the center of our affection. I pray now for the Christ Church of Oak Brook that you will take this word and sow it like seed in the ground of their hearts. Use it to produce much fruit. For the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.